There's a disease going around that is likely to kill 1,000 Kiwis this year. No one's making a big deal of it. It's a bit like an unwelcome guest that no one wants to talk about. It's COVID. It's still around and still claiming victims. Most of us only think about it when someone high profile gets it. Bugger. That's the word Chris Hipkins used in a social media post today as he revealed he's tested positive for COVID-19. I should tell you, I've, I've taken a lot of drugs to do this interview, so, you know. <laughs> Have you had the full flu symptoms, like aching and all of that stuff? I was sort of a bit wiped out by it, so, you know, the full body aches and congestion and coughs and the whole works. And uh, today the body aches have eased and a little bit of energy's coming back, but as you can probably hear, there's still quite a lot of congestion. It's a shame the Prime Minister got COVID. Uh, in fact, um, it's probably the only thing he's been positive about in the whole campaign, to be honest with you. And sorry to say that in spite of pandemic measures officially being over, health experts warn COVID is not. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, we're looking at the pandemic's tale and what we should still be doing to protect ourselves from COVID-19. Professor Michael Baker, an epidemiologist at the University of Otago, is New Zealand's go-to guy on COVID-19. I've been involved in more than 50 peer-reviewed articles about this and also more than 100 commentary pieces and uh, a lot of interview comments along the way. Wow, (laughs) it must keep you pretty busy. Uh, Well, look, thank you for joining us. Uh, So we still hear a bit of COVID going around. I mean, when the Labour leader got COVID, Chris Hipkins, many of the conversations I had with my friends were like, oh, I forgot that COVID was a thing. <laughs> We're not really thinking about it. Do you do you think that people are caring or noticing? Well, I think it's a bit like um, an unwelcome guest that no one wants to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but it hasn't gone away, that's for sure. It's still infecting thousands of people in New Zealand every week, putting around 200 people in hospital and unfortunately still causing around 20 deaths a week. So it's, it's our number one infectious disease threat. And if you just use those metrics, it's really displaced influenza as our biggest single infectious disease killer. When you put it like that, that's quite stark. Should we still be worried about this? We should be concerned. Uh, I mean, it's definitely moved from, from the emergency response to being a major health problem. But now we can take a more considered approach to it. And now we have to, I guess, uh, look at putting resources into this problem compared with other problems. So it's moved into being not quite an endemic threat because it's still got pandemic uh, aspects, but we need to be managing it along with a whole lot of other things. Right, so let's just deal with the facts of what's happening here in New Zealand at the moment when it comes to COVID-19. So how many case numbers are we getting per week? We're getting uh, several thousand. I'm just looking at the um, latest numbers here, talking around about 700 cases um, a day, or probably 520 roughly as a moving average. That's 3,500 or so reported cases every week. But we know that will be at best 50% of the cases in the community, maybe less than that. So uh, we're... Still looking at about 10,000 cases probably a week at least. Okay, it's about 10,000 cases a week. So remember back in 2020 when we were scared with there being like 80 cases a day? Yes. <laughs> Today I'm providing the Ministry of Health update on confirmed COVID-19 case numbers. There are 83 new cases of COVID-19 in New Zealand. With that 10,000, why do you say 
it's probably double the amounts in the community. Well, we've done some validation studies. It does suggest uh, at that point we were getting maybe a bit over 50% of people were reporting their cases. This was last year. But we know that reporting's dropped off for a number of reasons. And one is, of course, that there's no longer mandatory uh, self-isolation and also there's no longer uh, funding or, or support for people to self-isolate. So some of the rationale for doing this has, has now been removed and we have seen a drop-off in reporting after that. And overall we've had about 2.4 million cases, is it, since the pandemic began in New Zealand? Yeah, something like that. And uh, um, that will be, again, a huge underestimate. We would suspect now that the majority of New Zealanders have been infected at least once. And even if they don't know it or haven't tested or have tested and it's come back negative? That's right. There are lots of reasons for them not reporting. And, of course, some people have no reason to report because they won't have had a significant illness. Well, it's also remembering to put your rat test result in the system, isn't it? I mean, I almost forgot to do that when I had COVID. Yeah, look, I think New Zealanders have been remarkably good at reporting their results. And it's still very helpful uh, for tracking the pandemic. But we would expect over time there would be there'd be some fatigue setting in and also perhaps a feeling that the results are no longer valued as much for tracking the the pandemic. And I think New Zealanders should still report these results. It's still very important for us. Uh, to, to, to know what's going on. But I think the, the other big move was, I think, taking away the subsidy for when we removed the mandate for isolation. And I think that was a pity to see that go because I think it was um, still reinforcing how important self-isolation is. That's the COVID-19 Leave Support Scheme. That was cut in August when all restrictions ended. Today I am announcing the removal of all remaining COVID-19 health requirements. The seven-day isolation period and requirement for visitors to wear masks in healthcare facilities will end at midnight tonight. COVID-19 case rates, wastewater levels and hospitalisations have all been trending down. They may be trending down, but Baker says hospitalisations are still putting a huge strain on the health system. This will be you know, in excess of 10,000 hospitalisations this year caused by this virus, and that puts a big strain on the system because if someone's got an infectious disease, they require a lot more care when they're managed in hospital. You need to have infection control precautions and so on. So these 10,000 cases will really be interfering with hospitals doing other work such as elective surgery. So this is an added strain we don't want. And then we're talking about 20 people dying a week or so. How many do we expect to die this year? Well, we're looking at roughly a 1,000 people dying from the infection this year. And that's the most serious infectious disease kind of mortality rate that we have? For any single infection, uh, there's a lot more uh, if you add up all the infectious causes, but this is still way ahead of anything else. Uh, Behind that's influenza on around 500 deaths a year. And after that, you'll be looking at things like pneumococcal pneumonia and a number of other infections. But, you know, everything, uh, this is way ahead of other causes. Can we also talk about the wastewater testing and where that's sitting at the moment? How does that compare to what we're seeing being reported through rat testing? Well, uh, interestingly, um, we're seeing 
a rise at the moment, a relatively small rise in the detection of of this virus in wastewater, unlike the continuing decline we're seeing in self-reported cases. And this does seem to date to the period when we removed the uh, subsidy for um, self-isolation, and that coincided with when we removed mandatory self-isolation. And that was certainly an incentive for people to do a rat test and uh, report the results because that was really the entry into what you had to do to qualify for um, that subsidy. So that may be a contributing factor. I mean, we'd want to watch the trend for a bit longer because uh, both both of these lines you know, bounce up and down quite a bit over time. So you're looking at variants and other things that are popping up overseas in terms of COVID? Yes, well, uh, there's a now, of course, a global network of laboratory scientists who are uploading sequences from all around the world to a global database and also reporting on trends in particular countries. That's a valuable tool for telling us what will arrive in New Zealand quite quickly because we're so connected with the rest of the world. And people might remember recently there was a, a big concern about a new highly evolved uh, subvariant, BA2.86, which was also called Paroa. Health experts are closely watching the latest COVID variant, which they say can evade immunity even if you've been vaccinated or recently had COVID. There are only about a dozen worldwide cases of this variant called BA2.86. And then found in many countries quite quickly suggesting it was spreading fairly widely. And the thing that uh, really surprised people was that this new subvariant had appeared from nowhere and it, it was very different from the other branches of the Omicron tree that we'd been tracking. And it had something like 30 changes, um, mutations, in the genes that coded for the spike protein. So that immediately raised concerns that this new subvariant might be good at escaping our existing immunity and the immunity we get from vaccines uh, and, and therefore might become uh, more dominant and spread rapidly. And that's not good because that means a lot more cases. But it hasn't behaved like that so far. It's been detected in New Zealand uh, in wastewater only. It's not showing signs of taking over. So that was reassuring. But what I think it did tell us is that this virus has not stopped evolving uh, because that leap this virus showed, this variant, was as much as Omicron was different from Delta. So it almost was a point of needing a new uh, letter in the Greek alphabet, you know, pi, I think, is the next one coming up. So I think that's the really the alarm bells that, that were raised by that finding. Right, OK. You've done quite a bit of writing about this and you are going for a mitigation strategy, which is sort of what we've got in place now, but you want something a bit more concrete, do you? What what would be ideal? Yeah, well, um, we've you know New Zealand's now gone through the full range of strategies. So we had elimination uh, for almost two years, right up till December twenty twenty one, and that worked very well because it it kept the virus largely out while we were vaccinating the population. When we got the Delta variant outbreak uh, in Auckland, it was very hard to eliminate. Then we switched to, for a period, a suppression approach and keeping numbers down. We were still doing contact tracing. We still wanted to know about every case. 
and then Omicron arrived, and really uh, we had to change, and we you know switched then to this mitigation approach, which I think we've continued with right up to the present day. So mitigation means it's not a it's not a do nothing approach. It's basically you do a selection of things to try and minimise the harms caused by an infection. Like what? What can we do? Well, an obvious thing is you keep your vaccination and boosters at high levels. That's still a core strategy, which won't surprise anyone. The other things you do are things that also make a huge amount of sense, and they're things that are also very familiar. The, the obvious one is that when people have a, a virus or viral symptoms or respiratory symptoms, they stay at home, they self-isolate. So again, there's nothing new there. And also we pay increasing attention to settings where people are, are sharing indoor environments because we know that this virus is spread as a, an aerosol and indoors. So you're really looking at paying attention to the numbers of people you've got in enclosed places and ventilation. And then the other thing you do, of course, is if you are forced to be in a poorly ventilated, crowded indoor environment like a bus or a train as a, as a commuter, that um, we have mask use as a really highly encouraged um, strategy. It seems like the government is saying, oh, you can wear a mask if you like, but it's hardly happening. I mean, I go around public transport in Auckland and <laughs> like no one's really wearing a mask, maybe one or two people on the bus. I mean, people are a bit sick of it, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Uh, look, we're all absolutely sick of COVID-19 and we want it to go away. Or well, one of the, the, the measures we advocated in a very large article that was written by 16 of us and published in last week's New Zealand Medical Journal was that we take a broad-based mitigation approach, not just for COVID-19, but for all these serious respiratory viruses. What does that mean? Does that mean treating, say, RSV and the flu like COVID? Yes, it means having these more common approaches to all of these respiratory infections. And to some extent, we're already doing that because um, hopefully people are still self-isolating when they have these symptoms. As, as people know, you don't, you're not aware of what you actually have initially. You just have symptoms. Hopefully, your employer requires or encourages you to not come to work. And then after maybe two or three days, you've done a rat test and it's shown that you've got COVID-19 or you haven't. But at that point, if you've got a negative result, you may have influenza or RSV. Should you be going out to work and school and socialising or should you continue to self-isolate? So the key to mitigation, part of the strategy, as Professor Baker says, is vaccination. Helen Batusis-Harris is a vaccinologist, an associate professor at the University of Auckland. She talks to me about vaccines and the latest numbers on the uptake. Last I looked, it was about 70% or so in people over the age of 65. Um, I would have said that's not, I mean, perhaps too bad. Could do a lot better there. And I think it's about half of people over in the over 50s. What's out there for vaccines at the moment in New Zealand? At the moment, we've got a couple of options. The, the, the vaccine we've come to know and love, the, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, which is sort of the, I guess, preferred option. Um, and there's also another one made by a, a company called Novavax and available for people over 12. And the bivalent vaccine, that's available to people over 30, yes? A new Pfizer COVID-19 bivalent vaccine is being introduced for everyone over 30 years as a booster dose, and it will replace our existing 
monovalent Pfizer booster. So, of course, we had the ancestral strain and the vaccine and uh, sometime later a, a bivalent, so bringing in, you know, one of those sort of Omicron variants into the vaccine. But going forward, what we'll find is that they'll take the ancestral strain out and the vaccines will be more focused on the variant of the day, if you like, um, to be closest matched. So we'll be going back probably to to a monovalent vaccine. So will that still have protection for against other variants that come up after like that one variant? Yeah, I mean, they all, I think, offer a degree of cross-protection. The original variant's gone. <laughs> so so some of those earlier variants are, are, are bygones. They're not there anymore. So the focus shifts to what there is out there and what's causing trouble. And those formulations can now be uh, adapted and produced very quickly. So in, in under two months, you can you can switch it to something that's a better match. But they, they all, like that original variant still provides protection against severe disease across a lot of variants. So it's more about the challenge in preventing infection and mild disease. So getting infected in the first place and and getting mild disease, that's more of a challenge. Can we talk about the effectiveness of the vaccines though? So they're excellent at protecting people from serious illness, but when it comes to mild infection and asymptomatic infection, there's not really any difference. Yeah, it's it's sort of they started off with a hiss and a roar because they were quite you know well matched to those circulating variants, and then as that sort of shifted, uh, the ability to prevent initial infection in the first place started you know that was what you saw wane first and then the ability to prevent mild disease whereas you see that protection against more severe disease holding and that's because there's different immune mechanisms involved there what do you mean by that immune mechanisms so while you make this initial response and make all this this antibody and you're sort of flooded with all this antibody which is pretty good at you know, neutralising the virus first up, that wanes relatively quickly. But there's a whole lot of other immune activities going on in response to the vaccine that can take a little bit longer, but actually result in things like the long-term memory and also other other goodies like what some of your T-cells are doing and things like that, which are also involved as well. And those can be quite long-lasting, but they don't kick into action fast enough sometimes to prevent an initial infection, which is why you see people you know, get breakthrough infections, etc., but not necessarily getting really ill unless perhaps the person is um, a, a much older person. What work is being done to make them more effective in those early stages? There's quite, I mean, there's a lot of work going on to get vaccine solutions that will be better. So, I mean, before the pandemic, the investment in new vaccine development was pretty dismal. It's something that's insanely expensive and also comes with this very high risk of a fail. So there's been a lot of great technologies. They've sat on the shelf for a long time and then COVID comes along and um, and, and that changed. You know, those technologies were pulled off the shelf and as we saw rapidly. Now we can start looking at some of the other technologies that we know can result in the sorts of immune responses that might be better at preventing infection. And these are things like intranasal vaccines, so vaccines you sniff, or or skin patches, and these get um, what you call 
a lot more mucosal antibodies. You want them in the mucosa, you want them in the upper respiratory tract to catch that virus as, you know, as soon as it sort of appears. There's a lot of work that's been done for many decades in that space, and that's where some of the action's occurring. So we're likely to see that sort of thing coming along, hopefully nearer rather than far future now. And that, of course, has got that spillover for other respiratory infections as well, that, you know, COVID's not the only game in town, you know. Influenza causes us grief every year, uh, along with other respiratory viruses. So these can also, um, we might see developments there that can be more effective than what we have now. Talking more about those other vaccines so and how we can kind of get a universal vaccine. So we've got the coronavirus, the influenza and the RSV vaccine. My understanding is the US has recently approved an RSV vaccine for people over 60. And then we expect uh, at least two vaccines against RSV to be available in the fall, uh, just in time for, you know, a peak RSV season, which corresponds, of course, to influenza season as well. Yeah, this one's been a, um, a long time actually in the making. And finally, we've got the first authorised RSV vaccine. So you can sort of see a situation where perhaps annually older people will be offered a cocktail of coronavirus, influenza and RSV for the winter season. And we might see combination vaccines for, say, influenza and COVID in the next two years. I imagine that's coming quite soon. That'll really help with delivery, I think. Easier to get one shot than two. I did want to ask you about the measles as well, if you're able to comment on that. Deja vu. <laughs> a measles alert has heightened concerns about New Zealand's immunisation rates, especially in vulnerable regions such as Northland. A Northland student contracted the disease after attending a high school drama competition in Wellington. There are now 11 exposure events. Measles is resurging globally, uh, and it has been since pre-pandemic. So this is not just, we can't just blame the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic's made it worse, the threat worse of measles. And we still have not just gaps in our immunity through the community, um, uh, particularly in the young adult age group, but we've now developed some quite frightening gaps in infants, which, you know, had been closed up. But because that vaccine coverage in infants has dropped so dramatically, we now have some communities that have under half of their vulnerable infants vaccinated against this disease. So that's a real worry. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Michael Baker and Helen Patusas-Harris. Ma te awa.